You're listening to Venture Vignettes, podcasts featuring learnings from trailblazers in entrepreneurship and investment. I'm your host, Rihanna Shah, and today on the show, we have Sampriti Ganguly, CEO of Arabella Advisors. Thanks for tuning in. Sampriti leads Arabella Advisors, a mission-driven certified B corporation that has provided strategic guidance on over $100 billion in assets to increase their clients' philanthropic impact. Arabella helps foundations, philanthropists, and investors who are serious about their impact achieve the greatest good with their resources. Prior to her leadership at Arabella, Sampriti worked as executive director at the Corporate Executive Board, a corporate best practice research firm in Washington, D.C. Sampriti is originally from India, grew up in the Philippines, and has been in the United States since arriving for her undergraduate years at Swarthmore College, from where she holds a B.A. She also earned an MA in International Affairs from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and an MBA from the Wharton School of Management. Sampriti lives with her husband and her two sons in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being on the show, Sampriti. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. To kick it off, would love to hear more about you. What's your story? Well, um, I think you covered some of it. I grew up overseas. I came to the United States um, as a college student and was really inspired Um, Interestingly enough, I had an opportunity to go work in Nepal on women-owned micro-enterprises, so women who were trying to sustain a business for less than $100 a year. And I always thought that I wanted to do sort of gender studies, women's studies, and as I did my fieldwork over a summer in Nepal, what I realized was these women actually weren't struggling with access to capital as much as they were struggling with sort of basic business skills, bookkeeping, marketing, uh, positioning, kind of core business skills. And for me, that sort of pivoted me in a very different direction. It made me think about going to business school instead of uh, doing international development or gender studies. And once I got to business school, I found myself intellectually very, very curious about what makes Uh, businesses succeed and what makes them fail, what different business models are. And that sort of largely explains why I've been a consultant uh, (laughs) for most of my 20 years in my professional career. I have an opportunity to really learn about different businesses, different models. And I think as I evaluate whether it's in the for-profit or non-profit sector that I've looked at, most business challenges come down to some pretty basic things. Do you have the right people in place? Do you have the right product and or service? Have you priced it correctly? Um, And do you have a path to actually scale and grow? And I think that a lot of those core principles are true, irrespective of whether you have a for-profit venture, a non-profit venture, a social enterprise, or some other combination therein. Yeah, that's really interesting. One of the things that I started learning about as I I did more international development work, um, because when I was a a junior in college, I ended up traveling to six different countries with this really cool program where we were talking a lot about international development and what that looks like all over the world. And it seems like the economy or just business practices and economic development is really at the heart of when we're thinking about international development or, or sort of the betterment of people's lives, which is very interesting. Can you tell us about your work at Arabella Advisors and uh, what exactly does it mean to be a B corporation in the investment space? Yeah, so at Arabella Advisors, we um, advise philanthropists and donors to how to give their money away for the greatest strategic good. So we start with the premise of what impact are you trying to achieve and how can philanthropy help to advance those outcomes. Over the last five to seven years, what we have found is the most strategic donors use philanthropic capital as one of many levers to create sustainable social change. They also think 
think about advocacy and policy. They think increasingly about uh, donor collaboratives, so bringing together a broad group of donors. And they um, finally think about how to use financial capital, so not just philanthropic capital, but financial capital. And those levers collectively we think about as beyond grant making. So how do you use beyond grant making tools to actually create sustainable social environmental change in the societies that we're looking for? Um, So it's a real great privilege to be able to work with over 300 philanthropists and investors to fundamentally address the question of how do we create impact at scale. And what does that process look like when you have a new client who comes in and they say want, they want to deploy a certain amount of capital? How are you walking them through the process of investing their resources? So we do a couple of things. The The first is we really try to make sure, um, because philanthropy in many ways is about head and heart, we try to understand what their sort of passion, their mission um, is, and quite frankly, what is their commitment to that? Not just their financial commitment, but do they want to be actively involved? Do they want to be passively involved? Do they want to mm-hmm. be anonymous? Do they want to be actually well-known in this area? So we try to assess that first and foremost. The second thing is we help them map out which issue areas they care the most about. And then uh, we recommend doing what's called a landscape assessment to say, will your philanthropic contribution or your investment dollars create marginal impact in this particular issue area? Or will this create sort of meaningful impact in this particular issue area? Let's say you care about early learning. What is actually underfunded in the area of learning? Is it, for example, career opportunities for professionals who are in the early learning workforce? Is it sort of training within the classroom context? Is it the support structure for families who want to take advantage of these? There's a lot of different ways to think about where underfunding is. So we actually do that in um, terms of doing a landscape analysis. We will then help to sort of establish a programmatic strategy. And then we will help a donor figure out what are the different vehicles by which they want to create this social change. Do they want to use their family foundation to write a check to a grantee? Do they want to use a donor-advised fund or some other sort of uh, philanthropic vehicle? Or do they want to use financial capital to invest in a social enterprise that is um, solving for social change in a meaningfully different way? And quite frankly, what are the legal, operational, and compliance requirements for all of that different kind of capital? Because the sources of input and output of capital actually vary quite significantly. So we want to make sure that donors understand that fully before they would go ahead and actually invest in that. And then the last thing that we do is we then evaluate whether or not the program or strategy they've put in place is having the impact that they hoped to achieve. So we help them establish evaluation metrics at the very beginning and or we go in after the fact, three years into a particular program, to say, is this the change that you had anticipated? Is it happening at the pace and rate that you would actually like to do? So we really cover the gamut of all of those areas for a particular donor. It's really interesting. It sounds like it's almost a very big hand-holding in some ways where you're really trying to figure out what their values are and how their values can reflect in the investments they're making or just in the way that they're using their assets. Yeah, it absolutely is. It's a very uh, deep relationship-based approach. There's certainly a methodology behind it, but you have to get 
to know your clients and your donors very personally to be able to understand not just what are the issues they care about, but often why they care about those issues because it really gets to the core of their commitment and their sustained contribution in those programmatic areas. How do your clients think about the returns they want to make on these donations or these uh, resources that they're investing into a lot of these uh, different organizations or entrepreneurs? Could you talk a little bit more about that process? Yeah, so I would say, you know, there's a classic spectrum of what I would call impact first investors and then um, at, at sort of one end of the spectrum all the way through what I would call return focused investors. For Arabella, we focus primarily on impact focused investors. So I think about those as individuals who would, but for impact investing, just be very comfortable with giving their money away with no expectation of a return, who have now been catalyzed into really believing that social enterprises can help solve for um, uh, social challenges in a different in kind way. Um, And we help them become comfortable with different asset classes. So why would you think about um, private equity? Or why would you think about a convertible uh, note? Or why would you think about loans to solve for this? What is the sort of capital challenge that this particular cause area has and how does this help to accelerate capital into this particular market. We work less with return-focused investors in part because a lot of return-focused investors, quite frankly, have very large portfolios that they are trying to manage and they're diversifying their risk in a different way. Oftentimes, the people that are best suited to advise them have um, kind of the deep uh, models that are doing negative screens, that are actually systematically tracking opportunities. For the most part, I would say we start with individuals who are early in impact investing and want to understand um, how this is a lever that complements their grant making, but is not a sort of standalone strategy per se. Interesting. I'd love to switch to talking a little bit more about the nonprofit side of it or the social enterprise side of it. How are you sourcing these organizations or these various different entities that uh, these high net worth individuals are channeling their money to? Yeah, so a couple of different ways. I mean, I, th- I think we um, we have worked in this area for about 12 years, so we've had the opportunity to meet with, evaluate, understand, and get to know thousands of grantee organizations. So we have a pretty extensive database that we've already actually developed. We also, when we do a landscape assessment, we work with leading experts in the field, academics, practitioners, advocates to really understand the space more broadly. And then lastly, we work, uh, for the most part, we work internationally, but mostly our footprint is national. So we look across um, specific local areas, which is where a lot of nonprofits have their root, and say, if we were to lift an issue up at a national level, where are their funding gaps from a geographic perspective? Where are their capacity gaps from a grantee perspective to, again, help philanthropists steer their resources towards the most underfunded area where incremental capital has disproportionate impacts and outcomes. I'm wondering, have you seen a change in the landscape of philanthropy over the past decade or so? Because it sounds like there has been a a pretty big push towards evaluation or towards just a different type of looking at enterprises. Because about seven years ago, I, I started a social enterprise and it was very new at that time to think about 
investing in a for-profit business that's still mission-driven, but it seems like it might be becoming a little bit more of a, a mainstream idea. Yeah, I don't know that I would call it mainstream, but it is certainly more common today than it has been in the past. And I say it's not mainstream because to a certain extent, grant-making practices, um, investment policies need to still change at a lot of foundations, especially family foundations, which is sort of where the bulk of philanthrop- uh, philanthropic organizations actually are. There's um, something like 86,000 foundations. If you exclude the top 100 or the top 200 from an asset perspective, that is the majority of where foundations are. So I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say it's becoming mainstream, but it's certainly becoming more common. And I think there's three reasons. One, um, social enterprises now have demonstrated their success in um, achieving either scale and or achieving impact. So there's actually a demonstrated body that can be pointed to. I think secondly, you're seeing a tremendous rise in uh, organizations like B Corps, there's now 2,500 uh, B Corps, uh, 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 L3Cs, which are low profit liability companies, and earned revenue models or revenue generating nonprofits. And so there are many more proof points and a much larger pool of organizations by which you can um, think about directing your funds. And then lastly, we are seeing sort of a new generation of donors and philanthropists who are coming directly from entrepreneurial environments, especially tech and hedge fund executives who have, uh, I would say, a different expectation and a different time horizon for when they expect to see social returns. And as a result, they are willing to experiment more with new entrants and new actors to solve social problems at scale. So I think it's that sort of combination in that landscape that is really generating a lot of interest. But if you just look at pure capital, philanthropic capital, it still is going to the nonprofit sector for the most part. That makes sense. And can you talk about uh, some examples of organizations that have been exhibiting some of these higher risk practices? So I'll give you a couple of examples of organizations that we are seeing increasingly involved in social enterprises. Um, there was a recent project I worked on where you had a group of donors, so both large institutional foundations, but also individuals and families, highly focused on a specific problem. And that problem was how do we address unemployment and underemployment of adults in the upper Midwest. So they had a very specific focus and their hypothesis was we need to generate innovation in adult technology solutions. So adult technology solutions that help to destigmatize worker training, which is actually one of the barriers for adults to worker retraining. So you had a group of donors. They wanted to use their philanthropic capital to invest in a social enterprise or a series of social enterprises that were innovating on technology solutions for adults. So that's a very specific example of a group of donors who are highly focused on, a, um, I think, a very solvable um, social problem, but coming to terms with the fact that there isn't capacity in the nonprofit sector to address that specific challenge. There is capacity in the nonprofit sector to address other challenges, so in-person training, but they wanted to actually stimulate the creation of um, technology solutions. And so they came up with a a mechanism by which to actually do that. And we are seeing ideas and concepts like this consistently sort of rolled out across the philanthropic community. We had a donor who uh, realized that uh, the problem with getting a lot of women in the workplace was that there were not easy solutions where women could have 
proximity to childcare and healthcare that is necessary for them to have if they're going to reduce the um, absences from work. So this was a philanthropic organization that decided to come up with real estate um, uh, sort of capital to invest in childcare slash healthcare combo facilities in underserved areas to help stimulate women's access to capital. And so we are seeing a level of sophistication among the donor community where they understand the problem. They have a specific view of a segment that they are hoping to help serve through a research-driven understanding of where the stall points are and then addressing capital as, as one of those particular solution areas. So that's just a couple of what we're seeing and I suspect we will see more and more of those as the years go by. That sounds really innovative. I'd love to switch to talking a little bit more about you and your background yeah. on a personal level. So before you worked at uh, Arabella, you worked at the corporate executive board and I'm wondering what has it meant for you to be a woman in leadership because you were executive director there and now you're heading this organization and it's sort of a uh, one woman show in some ways. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about what that's meant to you? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I feel very lucky and very privileged to have had the opportunities that I've had to step into positions of leadership. Um, You know, a couple of things I've observed along the way, some of my most ardent advocates um, and mentors have been men. Um, And so I don't ascribe to the notion that only women can help other women advance. Um, I think you've got to find mentors and advocates in whichever space that you are and sort of prove your mettle. I think that I have um, sometimes felt a pretty heavy burden of not just being a woman, uh, but being a working um, uh, mother in particular, a working parent in the workforce, and uh, have often felt like uh, there's a young generation of women that would look to sort of my success or my failure, however it was measured, as a proxy for whether there is space and place for a woman and a working mom in the workforce. And so I worked really hard to um, work with my employers to navigate the very real demands of work and family. I've um, stepped back um, and taken part-time positions three different times over a 13 or 14 year period. And in each of those instances, I often felt like my gains were private and my quote unquote losses were very public. Um, There was a lot of judgment um, that that happens, I think, in the workplace. Um, And I have always felt the only thing that sort of mattered was my opinion um, and sort of what I could live with and and navigate. So I think the thing that I've learned about being a woman leader is um, to the extent that there are no trailblazers, for you to follow, you have to be willing to sort of blaze your own trail. Um, And I have been lucky to have workplaces and colleagues who have been incredibly supportive. And I hope in so doing, I've made it easier for sort of that next generation of women to be able to ask for um, and uh, get um, things that help them navigate their work and their life and their family a little bit better. That's admirable, because I think one of the things we sometimes hear as women is that women are really great at building that community, but there's also a certain degree of pressure that women feel to sort of do it on their own like a hundred times before they ask for help. And uh, I'm wondering, what have you done across your career to build that community and build that network of support and 
how did you sort of keep everybody in the loop? Yeah, so I um, I try very hard whenever I get outreaches from young women who are at early stages of their career or navigating um, challenging family and uh, work pressure dynamics. I always try to be very available to them, even if I don't know who they are, because I suspect uh, that they are struggling through something that I've been through. So to the degree that one opinion is important, I've tried increasingly to be a little bit more vocal. So use my voice and platform to participate in forums, um, whether it's through things like the Wharton Women in Business or other executive forums, to speak more directly and honestly about what I think some of the challenges are. I think women are encouraged to talk about how everything is sort of rosy and the reality is it's not. It's a struggle and it's a trade-off and it can be very hard. I have often found that being honest about what those challenges are creates a feeling of like, wow, I'm not I'm not the only person that's going through this. I This is actually a struggle for others. That's often more powerful than talking about what has worked is sharing how hard the journey actually is. So I've tried to do all of those things along the way. Um, I also feel that I have tried to educate a lot of my male colleagues about the reality of um, why, for example, it's very hard for me to go to a five o'clock meeting because I have to go and pick my child up from daycare. I have to drive him or her to whatever practice that they need to go to. And I've not, I think some women try to hide that or they don't want to, they feel as though that's admitting a weakness. And I feel like it's being very transparent about what real constraints actually are in the workplace. And I've had a lot of colleagues, especially younger colleagues who have appreciated having the chance to actually know that because that's not something that is their lived experience. So uh, wherever possible, not just saying no, but trying to explain why I have to say no when I can't do something. That's great advice and sounds like something that all of us should try to remember regardless <laughs> of whether or not we're, uh, we're women or men when we're, when we're starting out in our, our early in our careers. Yeah. We'd love to hear any advice you have for folks who are just starting out in their careers or folks who are trying to, to blaze a trail to find their way up in, in the executive ranks over their careers. Yeah, so my advice of anybody who wants to rise up through the leadership ranks you know, first and foremost, don't buy the hype and the narrative. Spend your time understanding the culture of the organization that you either are part of or want to be a part of. I think that is where energy is well spent, is to try to find an organization that is culturally aligned. And I think the second is to um, look for mentors in non-traditional places. So um, when I was a young analyst, there were two women partners, and every single woman was going to try to find a chance to have coffee or meet the two women partners. I realized that that was probably not the best way to get a lot of attention, and so I tried to find the one or two individuals with whom I had different connections to really build that. So look for sort of mentorship and guidance in a non-traditional way. And then the last thing I would say, and I encourage anyone to do this, I, I can't underscore the importance of networking. I really think it's important to try to foster connections both within your organization but outside of it and determine what kind of ecosystem that you're part of over the long tail of being an executive, those connections actually really pay off. Um, And so that's the third thing I would kind of encourage anyone to do is they're thinking about building out their executive profile. And as we're thinking about mentorship and uh, sponsorship, I'm wondering, do you have advice around finding sponsors or finding those champions who behind closed doors will be your advocates and be the one speaking out for you. When you're an adult uh, and you're in a career, you got to find out who you want to be when you grow up, just as you do that in life. I kind of came to a conclusion, 
early in my career that I wanted to be the person that didn't speak much, but when I spoke, everyone listened. So I tried to identify those individuals in my organization so I could begin to emulate their behaviors and learn from them. So I think my personal view is people tend to look for people like themselves. And my view is look for the person you want to be in the executive role and try to find them and um, target them as your sponsor. That's really interesting. That's a, that's a great way to, to think about it. And to close out, would love to ask, do you have advice for entrepreneurs who are seeking uh, financing in this space who do have a more mission-driven business? Yeah, the thing I would encourage social entrepreneurs to do is to think about a broad range of donors who may be interested in their causes. I do find, um, particularly in the Bay Area, but in general, people, social entrepreneurs believe the only way they can get funded is through venture capital. And I think there is a whole range of investors from family offices to individual donors uh, who are interested in early stage investment to family foundations and the corpus of that family foundation. And so my advice to any social entrepreneur is to find the entities that are mission aligned first and then think about ways to try to um, uh, not only get capital, but also to set terms that are more favorable for them than traditional venture capital and or traditional, even traditional impact investors. There are a lot of individuals who are looking for creative ways to fund social entrepreneurs, and it requires broadening the palette of who you think you can actually approach to be a partner in your business, not just an investor in your business. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That's really, really fantastic advice. You're welcome. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for having me on the show. You can follow Sampriti on Twitter at Ganguly S. For learnings from our conversations with our awesome guests featured on Mentor Vignettes, check me out on Medium or LinkedIn. Thanks for listening and looking forward to seeing you next week.